Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with you every Friday morning with your favourite podcasting app or indeed Friday evenings on RTE Radio. My name is Dusty Rhodes. You're welcome to show number 944. Niall Kitson, uh, who's usually with us, is on holiday this week. So joining us in his place is journalist Jason Walsh, who writes for our sister Tech Pro uh, magazine. Jason, uh, looking at the big stories, I suppose, uh, the tech layoffs, Meta getting rid of tons of people, Twitter getting rid of tons of people. What what does this mean for Ireland? Yeah, it doesn't mean anything good for Ireland, but what we need to differentiate is, uh, is it a dot-com crash situation? I don't think so. Or is it uh, something more like 2008, which is no better, but, but a quite different <laughs> situation. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, so we've got these tech companies, Twitter, as you mentioned, Facebook. We also have Stripe, uh, Zendesk, Salesforce, Microsoft, Intel. They've all announced layoffs. They tend to be being reported in the press as tech layoffs. I don't think it's as simple as that. So first of all, going back to the dot-com crash of 2001, people of my vintage will remember that. It's not the same because if you think about that era, that was exuberant investment in things that in some cases made absolutely no sense, like pets.com. The big poster boy of the dot-com era was a website selling pet food. Not a terrible idea, but hardly groundbreaking. Uh, Billions flowed into it. They were never seen again. The other poster boy was Amazon, which, uh, again, billions flowed into. And then billions flowed back out again. But it took 20 years to catch up. It became a really important business. So I don't think what we're seeing is a generalized failure of the technology sector. Mm. But it could be very, very bad news for Ireland because so many Irish jobs are dependent on foreign direct investments, particularly in tech. It's not all in tech. Uh, the government has been at pains to point out there's investment in, you know, pharmaceuticals, med tech, other areas. But it's that, um, all of that's true. But but tech and IT has been an absolute uh, sort of focal point for uh, in, inward investment mm. to Ireland. So it's really not a good situation. Um, I wouldn't compare it to the 2001 crash, but I would be worried that it would be more like 2008 that it could have a really bad effect on on the Irish economy. But you know, I also think we need to calm down slightly um, and just see how this thing is going to work out. During the pandemic era, a lot of money was flowing into tech companies because it had nowhere else to go. Interest rates were at zero. Bond yields were close to zero. Some bond yields were negative. Uh, all that capital was sloshing around. And it was going into these high-tech investments. Some of the companies like Twitter, quite dubious ones in my opinion in terms of profitability. Other ones like Facebook, mm, not what I consider a useful product, but it's definitely a profitable company. still is to this day. Um, that era is over. The, the, the interest rate uh, rise means that the era of cheap money is over. And I think we do need to ask ourselves, if a business isn't capable of making a profit in the era of 4% interest rates, should that business really be around? Um, I don't think I'd want to invest in a business that can't make profits in a what is a fairly ordinary interest rate number, mm. just as high compared to what we've had in the past. Well, life life is cyclical, and you know we always get recessions. I mean, you're quoting off the the recessions from just the last twenty years. So you know, around two thousand, uh, the dot com, uh, two thousand eight. Did we have one in twenty twelve? I think we did as well. Ah, oh, whatever. Uh, but anyway, they come around. Life goes up and down, and this is it. And this is just one of the downs. And you're right; it tests a business. And if a business can walk through a recession or survive through a recession, well, then it'll do well in the uh, in the long run. So the tech layoffs that we're hearing and all the doom and gloom and and some of the news outlets going, oh no, the world is going to, we shouldn't really worry about it. Well, 
I think we should calm down. I'm not saying we shouldn't worry about it. It, it, it depends. It's obviously a tragedy for anyone that's losing their job. And, you know, anyone that's been through that position will tell you it's not, not, not a lot of fun. Um, but I think one thing that we really should do is draw a distinction between a company like Intel, for example, which is expected to make you know, massive layoffs globally, including mm. some in Ireland. And we're going to see an announcement of that um, in, in, the coming, in, in the coming days and weeks. Make a distinction between that and the likes of Twitter and Facebook, because they're just not the same kind of company. We call these things tech companies. Intel is a massive manufacturing company that produces yeah. extremely high-tech components. Now, it has had a lot of trouble over the last couple of years, and it's got a long way to go to prove that it can beat its competitors. But it has got a plan under its new CEO, Pat Gelsinger. It has announced new factories in Ohio and in uh, uh, Germany and expansion in Ireland. And it has, uh, it has said it's going to take a number of years to... To, to put that plan into action. It's going to be capital intensive. It's going to hurt the share price. It's going to do all these bad things. But at the end of it, they're going to be in a better position, including because they're going to start manufacturing for other chip companies. Mm -hmm. You have to remember the majority of chip companies don't manufacture. They don't fabricate. They only design. Intel's kind of unique in that. So I would just think that we need to separate out a company like that, which has a very obvious business model from something like Twitter, where the business model is now apparently charging eight euros a month to... Let's talk about Twitter because that is one of the other big stories of the year and uh, or of the week anyway. Uh, Elon Musk is kind of doing his thing. Where do you stand on this? Th th this whole thing, I suppose the big storage of the week has been with the uh, the blue tick and the verification. And up until this point, you actually had to prove you were who you were in order to get the tick. Now you just have to pay $8 a month. So I could be anybody. I, I could just go on to Twitter and go, yeah, my name's Jason Walsh or Niall Kitzener or whatever it happens to be. And I just pay my money and, and then I can tell the world whatever I want and people will think that I'm you. It's, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous because it is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, it completely misses the point of what the verification was. Actually, I used to have verification when I was mm. on the staff of an American newspaper. And then when I changed my email address to my own email address, I lost it. And I didn't care because I'm not interested in that sort of thing. But if you are, if you're looking for verification that someone is who they are, that they mm. are a, a, a known celebrity or a known journalist or a known politician or whatever it is, then that, that performed a useful service. Yeah. If it's available to anyone for $8 or 8 euros a month, then it doesn't perform that service anymore. And it seems to me to be the desperate attempt by a new owner to wring some money out of a loss-making platform that he bought by accident. Oh, what a brilliant summation. <laughs> What a brilliant summation of what we've been going through. Uh, there is word, though, with Twitter, one of the things that Elon Musk wants to do is he wants to have a native payment system so that Twitter users will be able to, you know, send money to each other, much as we do with uh, Revolut. Do you think there's anything in that? I mean, I think there might be if it wasn't coming from Twitter, because I think Twitter has been in a bit of a downward spiral for some time. There's been a, mm. there's a real trust issue with some of these social networks. You'll remember Facebook considered launching its own cryptocurrency twice and failed trying to do exactly the same thing. And again, the problem was trust. Yeah, I think payments are a good business model and we do need you know, more uh, effective ways to send each other money. We all have a Revolut account. I don't do my daily banking through it, but I have it. I use it for, yeah. you know, it's paying like small bills yeah. and things. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's good, but I'm just not sure I would be... And I don't have a great view of Twitter anymore, which incidentally is very sad for me. I first went on Twitter about a year after it launched because I was writing for .NET magazine at the time, which no longer exists. And they told me to go onto this new platform, find out what it was about. And I went on, I was living in Dublin at the time, and it was the nicest online space I've ever been in. 
everyone was really kind and friendly. One day, um, my car broke down in uh, Parnell Street and people came out to help me. If you tweeted now that your car had broken down, people will come out to throw rocks at you. So <laughs> the, de the decline of the Twitter platform as it has scaled, I think, is, is the big story with that. So yeah, maybe payments is a good idea. Uh, speaking of money and payments and stuff like that, uh, breaking over the last 24, 48 hours uh, this week, of course, is Bitcoin has taken a dive. Uh, cryptocurrencies are taking a dive. Do you follow that at all? Yeah, I follow it intensely. Um, I'm totally unsurprised. I'm, I mean, I find the, the specificities of what's just happened this week are absolute. I won't bore you with the micro detail, but basically there are two exchanges that were owned by people who hated each other. One wanted to go down the complete Wild West road. That was the bigger one, Binance. And the other one, um, FTX, wanted to sort of cozy up to the regulators and be regulated. Uh, the, the two companies hated each other. It turned out that FTX claimed it had assets. The assets were assets that it had created itself out of thin air on paper. Binance ruined them by uh, selling offloads of those assets and then said it, it stepped in to say, oh, we're going to buy it. Don't worry. Um, we've signed a non-binding agreement. And of course, this morning they said, yeah, we've decided we're not going to buy it now. So they've just destroyed their competitor. I don't know. It's all about trust. Payments need to be about trust. And I think the glaring problem with cryptocurrency is that it just doesn't have trust. Listen, final story to chat about this week. Uh, and actually, it was one we were talking about last week, myself and Niall, was the fax machine, because in the UK, it's no longer a requirement, or they're thinking of making it no longer a requirement that uh, fax is a service provided by telecom companies like BT or, or whoever. Uh, but you had an interesting thing, because the fax, I thought, had been with us since the 80s, maybe, or the 90s. Apparently, it's a lot older than that. Yeah, I find this fascinating. The fax has been around, the technology has been around since the 1840s. Um, now, the modern fax as we understand it appeared in the 1960s, and it gained in popularity because of its use utility in Japan, where it was just much easier, given the nature of the language, to write something and effectively take a photograph of it and send that photograph, which is basically what a fax does. Hmm. We already had a technology called Telex that still exists, although it's rarely used, um, that was closer to SMS or modern email. And fax kind of replaced that, but it arguably was a step backward because we've all become used to the kind of the ability to send each other any kind of digital data we want in, in text form. Um, what I find really interesting about this is that these technologies, we say they're going to die, but they never die. They never die. Fax is still used, um, like I say, for common business purposes in Japan. It's still used in some legal transactions here in, in the West because it has that kind of, uh, it, it has, you know, a signature is binding. Mm. But it's also used in really strange ways. It's used on shortwave radio to send weather maps. Um, you know, these kind of niche uses never go away. And I, anyone who has a really long memory for strange stories will remember in 2010, there was a scandal at Dublin Airport because some plastic explosives that had been used by the, the police in uh, Slovakia to test their uh, control system had not been taken off a plane. And they sent, the police in Slovakia sent a telex to Dublin airport to warn them about it. And of course, because no one ever checked the telex machine, no one knew that uh, <laughs> what was going on. Now, the whole thing turned out to be a bit of a nothing because it was just explosives that were used for, for training sniffer dogs. There was no detonator. But I just found it fascinating that this, this ancient creaking technology of telex mm. was considered useful. I actually think it's really interesting that you say that old tech never dies because that is so true. I've had that with radio kind of all my life. Like radio admittedly had its golden age 
in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s or whatever. That's the, It was the big media of the time. But then, you know, the talkie movies came along and that kind of destroyed a lot of radio and then television came along and that destroyed a lot of radio. And on both of those occasions, they went, radio's dead. Radio kind of reinvented itself. And then uh, music radio came along in the 80s uh, and that gave it a, a, a whole new set of life. And then the internet came along and YouTube and they went, oh, radio's dead. <laughs> and our radio continues to live, I'm delighted to say, in podcast form. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, I think no, n- none of these technologies ever really die. I mean, you can no. actually still send a telegram if you want to, but I'll tell you something, radio is unique, radio is special, and radio will never die because radio is the best medium that has ever been created. Oh my God, on that note, we just have to finish. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you so much for keeping us up to date with what's been happening in the news today. Uh, remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters, and more at our website, techcentral.ie. <laughs> This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Despite a national effort to get more women involved in the tech sector, it still remains a male-dominated field. Michelle McDade is a Senior Director of Engineering at WorkHuman, and last week she chatted with Niall Kitson about this ongoing diversity challenge. Michelle, WorkHuman has been around for quite a while at this stage. Uh, however, your involvement is um, something in the region of, I think, four years at this stage. So tell us a little bit about the, the changes to the platform that have been there since, uh, since you've arrived. Yeah, I, I'm working with WorkHuman for four years and I have seen some a lot of change in that time. Um, some of the things that we're doing now are uh, well, we have Inclusion Advisor, which is um, part of a product where it actually uncovers unconscious bias. So if you're sending an award to somebody, it can highlight maybe some um, uh, blind spots or things that you maybe not have, maybe didn't consider in the way that you worded the award. Um, it's also human engagement. So using um, a data informed approach to help our users to be able to interact with our platform in, the, in an optimal way for um, the use of their product for their company. Um, we we look at through our mobile um, team, we would use an experimentation approach and we would look at um, how we can make the a platform more engaging for those who maybe uh, would prefer using the mobile than the desktop version. Um, so there's been a lot of a lot of change. That's interesting. The point that you raised there on data. So what sort of data are you gathering, and how is that informing uh, the product and the and the problems you're solving? We can see through through data. Um, the links between social recognition and employee engagement. So our day, we have a team that looks at um, through the data what the impacts are on, you know, how, for example, if somebody checks in with their manager or their people leader regularly, how that actually reduces the risk of their of um, attrition. Um, so there's a lot of of insights that we gain from the 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 data, and then we can help our customers to improve their human practices. So have you seen then any changes in the sort of the way people are engaging with their managers over the last two years from, you know, the basis of pre-COVID to COVID and now coming out to sort of a a post-COVID environment? 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, Work Humans platform is all about creating a more human centric workplace. And the need for that was really clear as we um, dealt with the pandemic and, you know, as people transitioned to working in a different way. So uh, people would have been uh, less visible, I guess, to to one another and the need for check-ins through our application actually was more relevant. Also, the social recognition uh, awards feed. So people would see um, one another's recognition. They can interact with each other. So the culture that we had built in the company really paid off during the pandemic. And when people moved to remote working, there was a lot, a strong connection, human connection there already. And, and we really capitalized on that. Um, but I think that the platform really made, I think visibility was something that a lot of people spoke about, you know, um, and it made, uh, it shone a light on people and what they were doing. But I guess the other thing is, you know, People leaders have had to change how they they work with people. We always talk about bring your whole self to work, but it kind of moved into a different um, dynamic during uh, COVID, you know, as we saw pets and babies and children appearing on Zoom calls. And, you know, you saw into people's lives and their homes and the need to be able to uh, deal with uh, and support people through the challenges that people had was even more uh, noticeable, I guess. So I imagine with a platform like this, where it's so important for management to be able to engage with their with their staff in, in either sort of a, a, a pedagogical or, or management role or, or even just simple contact, which uh, I know a lot of businesses uh, benefited from. Did you have to put a lot of work into scaling the platform uh, when I imagine there would have been a huge influx of, uh, of new customers? Yes, for sure. Um, we have, this has been something that's been on our, on our radar, but it has been more, um, I guess, more important as we grew, our customer base grew and we could see also, um, one of the things that we were just working on at the moment is team awards so that uh, if you wanted to give an award to a, a large group of people, uh, this was used a lot more by our customers during the pandemic, you know, to recognize uh, and also to celebrate teams and larger groups of people. So we, this is something that we are continuing to put a focus on as we see the need for our customers. I think that's a that that's a fascinating idea of, of recognizing the teams, which goes to sort of the the next question I have for you, which is sort of um, uh, the teams that very often appear at odds with each other, which would be the engineering teams, uh, who are all about you know developing new and better features, and the user experience teams who are very much on the, yeah, but who's actually going to uh, going to use this kind of thing if it's buried in the back end. So how do you find that particular tension uh, works within WorkHuman? So our product design, we would have product design, engineering, product, all working in a, in a tripod on, you know, each of the engineering, the areas of the teams. There's a lot of, um, interaction between everybody, but I think you need that healthy t- tension. Um, we 
we recognize the need for putting the focus on um, the user experience. Uh, it's absolutely critical. And we would encourage radical candor and psychological safety on our teams so that people can actually ha have a healthy conflict and make sure that we're making the right decisions. So that that sort of leads me on to the point of building an internal work culture that will actually um, create, you know, for want of a better term, a safe space for sharing ideas and and. Uh, engaging or, or exploring the benefits of, of healthy tension. How is, how is that working out in terms of sort of practicing what you're preaching? Yeah, so we we put a big focus on the culture. The culture is absolutely critical. And, um, you know, we know that uh, research has shown that the 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 biggest predictor of a high performing team is actually having that psychological safety. So we actually ran some workshops with all of our teams on, on using radical candor and creating that trust, the healthy conflict. And we put a big focus on, we have mood tracker is one of our, uh, it's part of our product where you can actually do a, a check in on how people are feeling. And that's one of the data sources that we have to, uh, along with obviously using our check-ins and our conversations with people um, to understand where we can improve. So there's an element of sentiment analysis goes on as well, I imagine, for identifying pain points in the company. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we're now looking at as well is developer experience. And um, it's somewhere we want to invest in in next year. Um, so looking at creating the environment that our engineers can actually do their best work and identifying what are the biggest pain points, working on improving that and making the process more um, efficient. So one of the biggest problems the tech sector faces is that gap between talent uh, and, and product, I suppose. There, there is a massive shortage of talent at the moment. So where does WorkHuman fit into this? It, it is a case where you're competing for people in the same sort of space as many of your customers are. So uh, what, what do you use as your differentiator? Is it, is it the culture? For sure, the culture is is, um, is a big differentiator, and I think people are more uh, conscious of that at the moment. You know, uh, people want to work in a company that has a culture that they can thrive in. Um, I think it's also important to think about how you know how important purpose is, and working in a company with a product that ha actually creates such an impact on humans is is really important to people and can play a huge part in, uh, you know, for, in my past, I worked in financial services and the difference between working on developing a product that has such an impact on people is, is huge. So looking at your own career then, um, so, and your, your previous experience there in financial services, do you find that a lot of people come to a, a coding or engineering background from other fields, or is it a case of people are going straight into it from college and that's kind of where the pipeline is, you know, it does the plaster set and you decide, okay, that's it. Somebody really wouldn't be a candidate for a, for an engineer, or is there still that sort of open-mindedness there that anyone can sort of upskill or retrain? So I think that, you know, as you talked about the, the competition for talent, it's really important to think about, you know, look at, at 
people through the lens of potential. And there's so many different paths to a successful tech career. And there's so many different roles. Um, so some people obviously come through the, the normal route, but there's a lot of people um, who've come through different experiences. And some of the people that I've worked with that really stood out are the ones that didn't come the, the traditional route and they bring a different perspective. I think it's really important that we have diversity of thought. And if everybody's coming from the same um, place, we're not going to design the best products um, for our customers. Also on that uh, issue of diversity, you've been sort of a, a known proponent of STEM careers for uh, for girls. Is this still as big a problem as it was maybe five years ago? You know, we're getting so much in the way of promotion uh, at second level to get girls more involved in STEM subjects. Are you starting to see it coming through the pipeline or is there still an awful lot of work to be done? I can see positive improvements, but there is still a lot of work to do. And, um, you know, back in the 80s, uh, there was a much higher number of women doing studying computer science than there is in the more recent times. And there's been some improvements more recently. But, you know, as you mentioned, it's the pipeline. So it takes a long time to change that. Um, so we need to look at every place that we can actually impact that, it, you know, help girls to see that there is other opportunities. I think there's so much unconscious bias out there. Uh, so even like in primary school, I think you need to start that early. Uh, parents, relations need to understand the impact that they can have. One comment can put somebody off a career in, in a certain area. It is something that we certainly hear uh, over and over is that it's it's the social factors, not the um, uh, not uh, proficiency. That is the the big thing holding girls back from looking at careers in the sciences. Um, yeah, and and part of that is also how they, um, you know, just because you can do something else very well doesn't mean you should do it. I think you know, understanding that. So what I've seen sometimes with women is they move out of a more technical role as maybe a software engineer into product manager or a different role because they can and because they're good, but you know. That happens. That uh, that happens too often. I think. So, do you think people look for jobs that might sort of uh, benefit, um, perhaps, a different style of of work life balance, as opposed to uh, pursuing something that might be technically more challenging? No, I don't think that. I think that it's just if somebody shows an interest in another area and is encouraged to move into that area, that that can, you know. I think we need to help people to understand where their skills are, where their strengths are and, and, and what is possible. There's so many possibilities now in, in tech roles. So we need to be able to help people to support them and understand why they're making the decision that they're making. I guess that speaks to the role uh, and importance of mentoring uh, in having a tech career. Have you seen much of that in your time? I'm a big fan of mentoring and I, I'm also qualified as a coach. So I think it makes such a, a, an impact. I would encourage the people that I work with to seek a mentor and and not just as a, you know, to think about what they want to get out of the mentoring. What is it that they think it'll improve them? It, it'll help them improve uh, maybe to set a timeline and, and to look at it again after that period. So sometimes people jump into a mentorship and then they, 
they don't say when it'll end and then it might, it maybe doesn't work out or it fizzles out. So I think it can make, you know, you can have so many different forms of mentorship. You can have reverse mentorship, uh, but it's a really powerful way to help you to, to grow in your career. That's, that's a fascinating point that you raised there about putting a, a time limit on a, uh, a mentor, a mentee relationship. Um, have you found very often that, you know, things can outstay their welcome and the level of feedback or the quality of feedback degrades over time? So are you talking about mentoring? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, it makes it's really important for both the mentor and the mentee to enter into it, knowing what they're trying to achieve out of it um, and having that timeline where you do a check in to see, you know, has this served its purpose helps um, avoid those uncomfortable conversations where you're like, I don't want you as my mentor anymore. <laughs> um, I think it's really important also, though, that you both people are committed to it and they both understand what they've signed up to. Um and also that you choose the mentor that um, works with your style, because I've seen sometimes where people are assigned mentors and I just don't think that works as well. And that was Michelle McDade, a senior director of engineering at Work Human, chatting with Niall Kitson. That's it for our show for this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie. And of course, you can listen to us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio 1 Extra. On the next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Jason Waltz and from Niall Kitson. Thanks for listening. Take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com.